You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome. You know, this is a little different than last week because somebody's back. Hey, I'm Victoria. Back. Hey, Victoria, I realize we never really talked to our dear audience about why you weren't on last week. You want to fill people in on what you're doing? Yeah, of course. So I've kind of alluded to the fact a couple of times that I'm taking some classes. Uh, And the reason I'm taking classes is that, uh, well, I will always be a naturalist at heart. I've decided to go to nursing school. And so I'm taking prerequisites to apply to nursing school. Um, Amazing. But yeah, it's, it's really cool. I'm really excited. I'll miss working as a naturalist, but uh, I'll have you. this podcast to keep in the naturalist world. And you'll be finding out about all kinds of strange medical things you can share on the show. Absolutely. But yes. you are still a naturalist. Always. Always will so be a we, we, we still have three naturalists on the show. We just also have a, a naturalist and a nurse now. Well, soon to be, yeah. sometime, someday. I mean, and if you have a medical emergency, I can help you, except that I'm not in the same room with you guys. That, that's, yeah, that's fair. That's true. So we shouldn't, yeah. Uh, it's like that recording you get when you call places where they say, if this is a medical emergency, don't shout at the podcast because we can't hear the audience. You should call 911. Good tip, yeah. That's a really good tip, yeah. Well, we have some amazing stories lined up for you this week, so take it away, Rachel. Okay. All right. So this week, I'm I'm excited. I actually just learned about this, well, obviously, but I didn't know about this particular thing until fairly recently, and doing okay. the dive was really fun. So... I want us all to imagine there were all ants. Okay? Okay. Done. All right. All right. Gotcha. I'm we're an all ant. little ants. We're doing our ant thing on the ant hill. Like, we're moving some dirt. We're doing different okay. types of uh, tasks and activities. We're gathering food. And all of a sudden, a shadow falls over us. Oh, no. Dun, dun, dun. That sounds bad. Doesn't it? And all Is of a sudden... Is it a cloud? Ooh, is it an I anteater? Like Ooh, both of those. Well, one is definitely worse than the other. <laughs> yeah, one is much worse than the other. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, oh, there's a bird sitting on our hill. Oh, no. Sitting there. No, no. No, no. So we round up our ant brethren and we swarm. And sistrin. Uh, the bird with, and we're the type of ants that we actually spray formic acid. So we start Mm -hmm. spraying the bird with our formic acid to get it to go away. But the bird seems to just take it and 
rub it into its feathers. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Because I was I was confused why the bird wasn't flying away. It sounds like this bird wants to be here. It does. Okay. Interested. Hmm. This week, I am talking about a behavior, uh, and it's a behavior in birds, and it's called anting. Um, you don't have to do it. That's so cute. That's a good name, yeah. Right. Um, they don't necessarily only do it with ants. Sometimes they will do it with, um, millipedes and I think centipedes. Um. Wow. Right. But for the most part, they just mostly do it with ants. Um, this is a behavior that occurs in over 200 species of bird. Wow. I, I. I, I'm, yeah. I'm a total bird nerd, uh-huh. and I have not heard of this. I was wow. 100% expecting you to know this, Kirk. No. Oh, does it, so does it, like, kill their lice or something? So, there's a couple different methods behind anting. And I will get to that question in just a minute, Victoria. It's a good question. So, uh, some of the species of birds that we know here around in the Midwest in Minnesota... Wild turkeys will do this. Blue jays, crows, a lot of songbirds will do this, actually. Uh, And they tend to do it around the time uh, they start to severely molt. So, like, end of summer, early fall, before they start their migration. Mm -hmm. Um, So, there's two types of anting. Uh, There's active anting, where the birds will pick up the insects with their beaks, and they will rub them over their body, <laughs> over their feathers. Okay? The latest in feather care. Right? Truly. Um, and then there is passive anting, which is where they lay on top of an anthill, like I described earlier, and or a space where there's lots and lots of ants or millipedes or centipedes. And they treat it like a dust bath. So they start moving and spreading out their feathers and letting the ants crawl over all of their different feathers, spraying that formic acid or whatever other chemicals and just act like it's a big old dust bath. Um, So because the insects are secreting chemicals, uh, especially like I've mentioned formic acid a couple times, but that works as an insecticide, miticide, a fungicide or a bactericide. So they're That's using a lot of sides. Them. it is. So that pretty much means if they're able to take that chemical and add it to their preening gland and start preening all of their feathers with that, they're wow. able to get rid of any mites or insects or things that might be building up on their feathers or on their body. Uh, this also could make the insects taste better for the animals that eat insects. Um, wait, what? Wait, wait, what do you mean? Well, the bird, some birds, you know, they eat insects. So if they, they prefer them with the formic acid? They prefer them without the formic acid. So what they'll do is they'll have the ants or oh. whatever spend <laughs> okay, okay. their energy until their that gland is emptied and they can't, they don't have any formic acid anymore <laughs> to, like, spend spray and they'll just yeah. eat them well now have you have either of you ever eaten ants i don't think so 
I don't know it's, if I'd be. It's one of those ants. things. Sometimes naturalists will be like showing off, like I'm gonna eat ants for kids or something. Ah. And I've had some ants. So, well, yeah, crickets are so have I. They're yeah, they're whatever. But some ants actually have very distinct flavors to them. There's some ants that taste like chocolate, some that taste like orange juice, and have different tastes. And that's because of the formic acid will and the different subtle mixes therein mm-hmm. will uh, give them all kinds of different flavors when you eat them. I'm not re- don't necessarily recommend going out and picking up a handful of ants and eating them, uh, but I might do not know some of them. They have, might bite you for yeah. one thing. Some of them have very interesting tastes. So. Okay. Um, and then now, if if you take the chocolate flavored ants and put them in chocolate, it's like double ooh. chocolate ant. That and if you put really the chocolate, good. if you put the chocolate ants in your peanut butter, no, never mind. <laughs> you got chocolate ants in my peanut butter. Well, they That's need a just have ants commercial in throwback butter. to the eighties for them. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, Kirk. Age. Okay, I'm, I'm, sure I'm with you too. Remember. I, I, I okay, good, good. kind of remember that one. Oh, okay, uh, I think it was on later <laughs> as well. Um, there are some benefits to the ants as well there's still some debate about it but it they have done some studies where uh like naturalists or not naturalists some there were some people who were concerned about the ants being decimated like their hills their ant hills obviously there's a bird landing on them so it smushes them and just kind of crushes the hill itself in that structure. What some people did was they covered the ant hill with a mesh to prevent the birds from flopping onto it uh, and right. go and participating in this anting behavior. And the next year, the ants have actually moved it outside of that meshed uh area which is amazing uh and it turns out it could be because by letting the birds flop onto that and do passive anting on the hill it can allow more oxygen to enter the hill which is really important for ants to be able to you know breathe but it also can help turn over the hill a bit to remove like waste and reduce the work for the rest of the ants yeah, to be clear, for those people who uh, don't know much about anthills and stuff, too, ants don't live in anthills. No. Like, ants live underground, and the anthill is, like, the waste pile of all the sand that they've, like, pushed out from underground. Mm-hmm. So, like, I know when I was a kid, people were like, oh, don't kick the anthills over, that's their house. And it's like, that's, that's their garbage pile. Like, it really doesn't affect them to be brushing that away. Or, it's, you're, I mean, if the birds are flapping around and brushing away, it's like, Great, thanks. We have more. We have more room for piling up our waste now. You know, so. Mm-hmm. so I, mean, I think people's hearts there. hearts are in the right place, but it, don't bother. Yeah. But that's what I have for you both this week. Cool. A weird that's birding, very fun. Uh, behavior. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna go to a break, and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you 
who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. Hey, we're back. And today I'm going to talk about one of the coolest animals in North America, in my opinion. I feel like we've mentioned this animal in passing a couple of times. Uh, and I think Rachel may have a guess. I'm What's your guess, Rachel? It's off my list. Is it the North American possum? The Virginia opossum, yes. Yay! Didelphus When you Virginiana. said the coolest animal, I figured polar bear, because they get pretty cold, but that's mm. a different kind of cool. Yeah. True. I, I immediately was like, it's the possum. Nice. Yes. So the Virginia opossum is the only marsupial found north of Mexico. It's amazing. There are other species of opossums that are found in South America, uh, and that's actually the origin of all opossums, but uh, opossums moved north when the Isthmus of Panama formed. It was called the hmm. Great American Interchange. And okay. actually, thanks to climate change, they're still spreading north. Um, sure are. Yeah. Currently, eastern North America, like East New England, um, Minnesota, and Ontario are kind of the top of their range. They don't occur west of the Rockies, except we're introduced Okay. Um, but they actually occur as far south as Costa Rica. All right. And there are so many cool things about this animal. I love possums. Do tell. Well, uh, for one thing, they have an opposable thumb and back so that they can grab onto branches. I nice. did not know and that. And they also, yeah, they also have a hairless prehensile tail, tail and their ears are hairless also. Now that tail kind of gets into their not so great reputation among many people because it does make them look a lot like a rat, but they're not a rat and they're not related to a rat. A a bushy tail would be really good for their PR image. It would. Those are the uh, possums in Australia. Yeah. But, you know, I think a a bushy tail probably wouldn't be as great for hanging onto tree branches. Not so much. And uh, possums are all about practicality, in my opinion. They're not into looks um they don't care what you think about them so i think they're cute but i know they freak some people out yeah Yeah. i think they're adorable i i do too in a scary ugly kind of way (laughs) (laughs) um so with that big geographic range that i mentioned also comes a really big range in size so the biggest ones are found in the north of the range and the smallest ones in the tropics well, I so mean, that get makes this. Sense, yeah, it does because you need a, you know with a surface area to volume ratio. If you want to hold on to body heat, it's better to have a larger body. Yeah. Right. Bergman's uh, rule. Yes. Okay. For those nerds out there. I didn't remember the name, but thank I did you. Did not know that. <laughs> uh, I remembered the concept, which I feel like is the important part. There you go. It's named after some. I'm assuming dead white guy. So. Probably. Most things are. Uh, so get this. Tropical females can be as small as 35 centimeters long and 300 grams. That's 
13 inches and 11 ounces. That's so um, cool. Does that include the tail? Uh, no, not including the tail. That's to the base oh, of the okay. tail. It's still so and, small. Yeah. And so males are a little larger. So that would be like 800 grams, uh, 1.7 pounds for males around that size. In the north, they can be as long as 94 centimeters. That's 37 inches. Mm-hmm. And sure <laughs> 3.7 to 6.4 kilograms or 8 to 14 pounds. So that's actually one of the biggest size ranges of any mammal. Uh, like one species huh. of mammal. I think dogs are also one of the biggest range of sizes. Yeah. That makes sense. There's been some uh, meddling when it yes. comes to dogs. Though. Opossums do it all on their own. <laughs> also, they have 50 teeth. That's a lot of teeth. What? Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that freaks people out about them some too is that I did not know they had mouth. 50 teeth. Um yeah. Marsupials so in general tend to have more teeth than um placental mammals. And yeah, 50 is as I I wasn't able to find like a really good concise listing of uh, you know, the rankings of most teeth for land mammals. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as I can tell, opossums seem to be the ones that have the most of mammal land mammals that have differentiated teeth. So there are some armadillos that have more teeth than that, like 80 teeth or 100 teeth. But they have these kind of weird peg teeth uh, right. that are different. Okay. Well, when you mentioned the the teeth and the jaws, like when I picture a um, a possum, it always reminds me of another topic we talked about, which is the Tasmanian tiger or the thylacine, mm-hmm. who have that huge mouth that can open up, and it's just it when you're used to seeing uh, you know placental mammals, like kind of their mouths are all kind of similar, and you mm-hmm. see. It, that huge, huge jaw with all the teeth, and it's just like, what is going on? And I get that same vibe from Makes uh, you uncomfortable. the opossum, yeah. Yes, totally. Well, with those teeth, they are excellent omnivores. They, uh, the largest part of their diet is insects and other invertebrates. And actually, they are incredibly efficient at finding and eating ticks that Yay! crawl onto them. I was yes. going to say that, and I'm like, nah, Victoria is definitely going to mention that. Yeah, each opossum is believed to eat up to 5,000 ticks per year. So, so great. Go opossums. Oh, I love them. They also love to eat snails and slugs and overripe fruits, so gardeners really should appreciate them. Yep. They will catch and eat rats, mice, cockroaches, and they also eat carrion. And of course, garbage. People often blame them for knocking over trash cans, but raccoons. it's usually uh, the raccoons that actually knock over the trash cans, and then the opossums just come and uh, partake. Yeah, Take like, the oh. ra- even the raccoons hey. wouldn't eat. Right. <laughs> that's, and that's saying something. <laughs> yeah. I feel like raccoons are pickier than people think, though. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. They want the good stuff. Other amazing cool things about opossums is that they are resistant to snake venom and can prey on snakes, including venomous snakes. And they're also resistant to rabies. I feel like we might've mentioned that in the rabies episode, Mm -hmm. possibly due to their lower body temperature. Yeah. 
Oh, that's that's so. I'm I'm not. I'm gonna think about the fact that uh, they're resistant to snake venom. Yeah. Yeah. And rabies. That's crazy. They are awesome animals. Superheroes. Ticks. That's amazing. They have usually one to three litters of babies per year, usually eight to nine babies, uh, but they can give birth to up to 20. But uh, since they only have 13, they have 13 nipples. (laughs) So only 13 max are going to (laughs) survive because they're marsupials. Why? (laughs) That's an odd. Why? It's an odd number. Odd number. And it's 12 in a circle plus one in the middle, which is super weird. That's all right. Okay, sure. Why not? Possums do how they do. I I will say I find it really cute. I've been seeing it on like uh, TikTok and some other social medias. Of, like possum, uh, someone has saw a possum and it had all of the baby possums holding on to its back or her yes. back, I should say, and just she's walking along and it was it it was so cute. It was so. It's fun. adorable. <laughs> Yeah, so the the babies stay in the pouch for about two and a half months, and then they will climb on mom's back and learn survival skills. And they pretty much stay there all the time once they're on the back. It's like the, the second pouch, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after about four to five months, they leave and are on their own. Oh, oh four to five months. My like, back would hurt so much. <laughs> yeah. Give me flashbacks of when I had a... A baby of my own at home, and they're kind of attached to you for four or five months, too, so, or longer. Mm-hmm. So now we get to their defenses. So when they are threatened, their first response is to show all those teeth, hiss, yeah. drool, and puff up their fur and generally look scary and aggressive. But right. uh, rarely oh. will they attack. People sometimes mistakenly think the opossum is rabid because of the drooling. Hmm. But as noted, they are Can't. pretty resistant to getting rabies, so that's probably not the case. Makes sense. If they get really ticks. scared, okay. they play possum. So this is where this phrase comes from. This is actually an involuntary response to fear. What? So they're not shamming. They just, this is a different state of consciousness for them. The possum is not dead, but it's it's not pretending. Uh, and... So their muscles go stiff, their teeth are bared, drool drips out of their mouth, and they sometimes leak a nasty-smelling green fluid from an anal gland. And it looks oh. like it's dead. Yeah, it's gross. Oh, gross. It's really gross. But that's the point. Since most predators want to catch live prey, they lose interest once the opossum looks like it's dead. Huh. And it can stay in the state for several hours before it wakes up. Oh, so wow. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah. If you ever find a, a possum that you think is dead, the advice is just to leave it there for a while before trying to collect it and dispose of it. Not because put it, it in your car. Yeah, nope. don't put it in your car. Nope, don't do that. Um, speaking of cars, unfortunately, this, this um, response, po- playing possum, is very maladaptive when it comes to motor vehicles. Yeah. Uh, the car doesn't care if it's pretending to play dead. It just becomes dead. And that's a bad place for a nap. Yeah. And I, a lot of the time they're out on the road because they are trying to eat roadkill. Mm-hmm. And then they become roadkill. That's so upsetting. 
And my final thing is, speaking of eating, they used to be widely eaten in this country. What? Mm-hmm. And if you, if you find a copy of The Joy of Cooking from like the 1960s or earlier, it actually has recipes for game, including a possum. Okay, um, I, it's, it's on the shelf upstairs. I'm going to have to go look. Yes. I'm pretty sure I have it downstairs, yeah. I, I have my mom's like 1962 uh-huh. copy of The Joy of Cooking, I think. Um, huh. The process, if you're interested, is don't skin the possum. Scald it as you would a hog, and then scrape off its fur. Roast it like pork. That sounds like. A let us, work. readers, if you uh, decide to cook possum at home, readers. let us know how that. I mean, listeners, let us know how it tastes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's I'd love to know. I don't right. know if I. I like possums. I don't know if I want to eat one. I would try it if offered. I'm pretty adventurous when it comes to strange foods. It. All right. All right, that's all I have on Opossums for you today. We're going to have a short break, and then it'll be Kirk. This week's topic uh, for me is one that I've wanted to do for a long time, basically since the beginning of the podcast, but uh, I never quite got around to it. And then uh, this week while researching some other topics for the show, oh my gosh, there it was. Uh, a new bit of research that came out that related to this topic that I've been thinking about doing for so long. And so, today we are talking about summit disease. Summit disease? Like like when you go up to... Altitude sickness? I thought you might go there. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Okay. I was curious if either of you had ever heard of this. So, I'm guessing you absolutely have heard of this, just knowing you two, being the hosts of a show like this. You may not have heard of it by this name. So, okay. Summit disease, like you said, it sounds like something that would affect mountain climbers, uh, but it's mm. actually something totally different and absolutely bizarre, and I love it. Uh, summit disease is actually caused by a fungus, which I think is pretty interesting because okay. we think a lot about diseases being caused by like viruses and bacteria. We mm-hmm. often don't think about some of the other weird things that can cause diseases. Well, um, I mean, to be fair... To be fair, uh, viruses and bacteria can change a lot faster. And one of the reasons like fungus is a little harder for not as much of a disease thing for humans, at least, is because it can't handle our body heat, like our Mm. body temperature. Mm -hmm. That's why they like our toes. Well, good news. (laughs) Gross. Um, uh, Summit disease, just up front, does not affect humans. So we're all, we're all off the hook from this one, okay? Okay. Uh, it is actually most commonly associated with grasshoppers. Um, but there are versions of it in other species as well. So what happens in summit disease is that insects become infected with one of several very specific forms of fungus. Often they are host-specific uh, to a specific species of uh, insect. And the spores land on the body of a host insect, and then it produces what's called a germ tube. And it's a germ tube is basically uh, what allows this spore to bore through the cuticle or essentially, you know, the exoskeleton of the insect and just mm-hmm. shoop, its way right uh-huh. inside. And once inside, it bizarrely, I think this is really cool, just a little bit of the biology on this, it changes into a, a new form uh, that has no cell wall. So picture like an amoeba. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. 
And by doing this, it actually evades the immune system of the animal because it's looking for things that have a cell wall that it can attack. And Amoebas this doesn't have a cell wall, right? Okay. So pretty right. clever. Yeah. Uh, make no mistake, though, uh, it is now multiplying and growing mm. inside its host animal. So summit disease eventually uh, turns insects into zombies. It takes over their body. And uh, as they are dying and this is multiplying inside them, they get an overwhelming impulse to climb. Okay. So I feel like I have heard of this a long time ago. they, Sound vaguely they, familiar? They, yeah. So they're, they're going to go to like a tree or some kind of high object. In the case of grasshoppers, uh, it may just be like a tall plant, you right. know, like a flower or something like that. Um, and they'll start to climb and climb and climb to the summit. So that's okay. where this gets its name, the summit disease. Uh, so they're going to go to the highest spot they can, they can get to and latch onto the plant. And the fungus will continue to grow and eventually kill the host, which will Ooh. then remain permanently clamped on and hanging at the summit of the plant. And at this point, hyphae uh, begin to grow Uh from the inside of the the insect Insect. and pierce back out through the cuticle and spores form on the outside (laughs) of the insect. That's so awful. I mean, awful, really cool. Yes, and the spores are then released from this high spot, which may be the top of some uh, plants or maybe perhaps a tree. And they, the spores then are blown on the wind. They will cascade down upon the forest or the prairie or wherever this happens and hopefully land on other insects uh-huh. or even end up in the soil uh, where they can remain for years until they encounter one the correct species of insect who then becomes infected and the whole process can repeat. What a dispersal uh, method. Yeah, amazing, right? A totally <laughs> amazing dispersal method. It's like, oh, Crazy. forget, like, you know, growing a mushroom on the forest floor. Like, we're going to... Hijack the nervous system of a grasshopper. Exactly. <laughs> so, so wild. It, it's absolutely crazy and bizarre and just amazing. Uh, it would be sort of like if the coronavirus compelled humans to have an uncontrollable desire to be in large crowds. <laughs> that's, which, maybe that's what's going on yeah which uh. now that i think about it maybe that is what's going on uh, uh. because uh. Some pe- anyways we're not going to go into that so this is all really strange and it's one thing i was kind of considering talking about just on the show but mm-hmm. i discovered even more to this story what? which is what what inspired me to like talk about it this week so but wait there's um, more i uh-huh. let's be fair I did not discover this. Some researchers discovered this. I just happened to read their paper, right? Right. Uh, so uh, there is a species of fungus. Uh, it's Entomorphia muscae that is being studied by a team of researchers at the University of Copenhagen and the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. I'm go ahead and give a shout out. Give full credit. This was Andreas. I'm about to butcher everyone's names. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andreas Nondrump. Bjorn Boham, Charles A. Quanta, Annette B. Jensen, Paul G. Betcher, and Henrik H. Define Licht. Uh, so, what a name. I want to point out that this article uh, was on a biology preprint server. So, what that means is that this has not yet actually been published right. in a journal Ooh. and peer reviewed. So, this, okay. this has not been peer reviewed. That's important to know. 
is. However, kind of looking at this, even the kind of research that it was, I don't see any particular reason uh, to think that their premise isn't going to hold up under peer review. Uh, this mm -hmm. actually was just posted uh, onto the preprint server on October 22nd of this year. So this is okay, uh, pretty really new recent. stuff. Yeah. So the fungus they were studying is a fungus that creates summit disease, uh, which we just learned about, in the common housefly. So hmm. just like other summit diseases, the infected flies are compelled to fly, in this case, uh, to the top of a tree, grab on tightly, spread their wings, and die. Uh, now, the researchers were looking at females in this case, and what they found, I think, is, like, <laughs> even more disturbing than regular summit disease, okay? So, the, the it's already pretty flies... disturbing there, Kirk. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, the female flies <laughs> go to the top of the tree, they spread their wings and die, like I said, and uh -huh. they're holding on to this spot, um... And the hyphae do, like, burst through the cuticle and produce spores on the outside of the fly. But this is where things change. Because apparently, from what I can gather, they, they don't rely on the wind to spread the spores. Uh, the fungus actually causes the dead flies to give off a very particular smell. No. Oh, no. No. And that smell happens to be incredibly attractive to male flies. So weirdly, now this isn't like a fly pheromone that they're okay. reproducing. Um, okay. It's a unique smell produced by the fungus that the flies just happen to be attracted to. And some of you may be thinking, oh, this sounds familiar. We have seen this before in a fungus. It shouldn't be too surprising that fungus can attract flies. The classic example is um, fly agaric mushrooms, mm -hmm. that, which are the classic red like smurf toadstool mm -hmm. kind of yeah. looking things that we all know. Um, and when you break those apart and put them in water, especially hot water, they act as a fly trap and attract flies. People have been using them that way for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Huh. So it was an interesting side note, by the way, fly uh, agaric on mushrooms is actually in the genus Amanita, which is also the same episode. I was going to say. Yeah, a couple of episodes back, talked about the death cap mushrooms, okay. and they're in the same genus. So that's kind of mm -hmm. cool. That is really cool. So, to be clear, though, uh, the, the smell, as far as I can tell, this substance that they're giving off is not the same substance that's in the fly agaric mushrooms. It's, it's a, a unique compound that just okay. also happens to attract uh, flies. So, why give off this smell that attract flies, you might ask? <coughs> well, Spread when this particular odor is given off, it attracts male flies who then come and attempt to mate there, with the corpse... Yeah. Of the dead female fly. Yeah, they do. Uh, Which is, yeah, that's just special. Of course they would. <sighs> sure, why not? <sighs> yep, there it is. So uh, during this uh, act, shall we call it, uh, the male flies get the spores all over them. Mm -hmm. They become infected, and this perpetuates the reinfection cycle for the fungus. So they took it, they took it just one step further <laughs> than just having the wind uh, yeah, just one. spread them about. <laughs> Just one that's, or two yep. steps further. That's all. It's fine. Pretty macabre. It's, it, yeah, it's pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, but it goes to show, you give, given enough time and enough permutations of you know evolution and whatnot, pretty much <laughs> almost anything's possible, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, if there's a, uh adaptation that proves beneficial, guess what? Like, it can happen. So 
when I heard about this, I already wanted to talk about summit disease because there's some amazing examples of it. But this one that uh, just is brand new, you know, breaking uh, news here on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just I was stunned. <laughs> it's really be. something. Jeez. Really something. Neat. <laughs> that sums it up. Kurt. Neat. Neat. That's neat. That's special. That's neat. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you can do that now, huh? Okay. Oh, yeah. I just think it's neat. Well, that's that's it, you guys. Thank you, everybody. And uh, Thanks, everyone. Yeah. See you next week. Think about that as you drift off to sleep. Thanks. I will. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to know, do, do you have like a Google alert? Do you have a police scanner for these preprint <laughs> websites? Or like, how did you find this? Uh, you know, uh, my news feed is really strange. And the more <laughs> stuff I research for this show, the more absolutely bizarre stuff <laughs> just comes to me. And it's, I'm actually getting a new phone soon. Mm -hmm. And it's um, it's gonna really you know I start over, because my newsfeed will not be as twisted and strange. So um, I'll have to teach my new phone what sort of uh, interesting, you know, the algorithm's got to figure out what sort of weird stuff it, it should serve up to me. Fly fungus necrophilia. Yeah, there it is. That's what uh, that's what the people want. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.